0: Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss and thanks for listening. Tardive dyskinesia is a condition that was first named and classified in 1964, and it has been associated with the use of certain types of medications that are sometimes needed for particular clinical syndromes. Psychiatry and neurology have worked hard to understand it, to try to reduce its onset, and to understand the mechanisms of how to control it should it appear. We will frequently refer to tardive dyskinesia by its initials, TD. Joining us today to give us an overview of this condition is psychiatrist William Glazer from Key West, Florida. Dr. Glazer is a respected and published clinician and researcher who has also been on the faculty of both Yale University and Harvard University. Dr. Glazer, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure, Abby.
0: Let's begin with a general question. From a medical perspective, what is tardive dyskinesia and how does it present?
1: Tardive dyskinesia is actually has different definitions, but for the purposes of this discussion, TD is chorea. Some people refer to tardive dyskinesia in a broader sense because there are other movements that can be caused by long-term exposure to antipsychotics. But I like to be as precise as I can, and so neurologically, the movements of TD are chorea. Chorea is a dance-like, worm-like movement, tough without video to really make the point, but it's, say, to be contrasted by a tremor, which is a regular jerky movement that we're very familiar in seeing antipsychotic-treated patients. Chorea is a smoother movement. Now, the tardive dyskinesia is the abnormal movement, chorea, that results from exposure to antipsychotic medication. And that exposure, the research criteria that I think have drifted into practice would suggest that three months exposure to antipsychotic medications would be desired before you would make the diagnosis of tardive dyskinesia.
0: See, that's an interesting point that you make about the movements because I think most people understand what Parkinson's disease looks like, but tardive dyskinesia is marked by moving. Very interesting difference.
1: But also, Abby, just to clarify that, there are kinetic forms of Parkinsonism. So, we, for example, we do see tremor, and that's important because I we, we once reported a couple of cases when I was at Yale back in the late 70s. We saw some patients who had what it turns out to be a Parkinsonian tremor of the lips, but we thought because it was a mouth movement that it had to be tardive dyskinesia, and we reported those cases. That's one paper that I published having and I regret having published.
0: But that's how we learn.
1: Yes, it is. It's important to make a distinction between tremor and chorea. Tremor is a repetitive, regular, rhythmic movement that occurs greater than two per second whereas the choreic movements of tardive dyskinesia occur less than two per second.
0: Okay, so let's take this then for a little bit further clarification because a lot of times when people are on antipsychotic medications, they encounter a condition known as extrapyramidal syndrome or EPS. What's the difference between EPS and tardive dyskinesia?
1: Okay, first of all, extrapyramidal side effects, that's really Parkinsonism plus akathisia and dystonia, and sometimes tics, so that the extrapyramidal syndrome is a catch-all phrase that covers the types of movements that I just mentioned. The most common ones that we see in practice are tremors and akathisia. Extrapyramidal symptoms can be treated with anticholinergic agents like cogentin or artane, whereas tardive dyskinesia gets worse when you treat the patient with artane or cogentin. So there's a very real difference. Also, the other difference, obvious one, is that the extrapyramidal symptoms usually are going to appear within days to weeks of the patient taking the medication. In the case of tardive dyskinesia, as I've already said, it's usually three months or longer before the movements appear.
0: And is tardive dyskinesia necessarily permanent as opposed to EPS?
1: That's a good question. Our work at Yale and the work of others that have tried to look at the course of tardive dyskinesia over time What we have found is that most patients, when they develop TD, if they have it for over a year, it's not reversible. There are certainly exceptions, and I can tell you cases that I've seen of patients who, you know, appeared pretty regularly at our tardive dyskinesia clinic, and then it seemed as if the TD just spontaneously went away. I mean, I have seen that in patients, but for the most part, If you follow these patients long enough, what you see two patterns that are chronic. One pattern is it's a low-grade ongoing movement disorder, and the other pattern is it's intermittent. The good news, that's bad news, that that it's not reversible for the most part. The good news, though, is that the majority of patients who develop tardive dyskinesia usually develop in a low-grade severity such that you may actually have to examine the patient in order to even see it.
0: So it can be rather subtle in its presentation.
1: Yes, in fact, I'd venture to say that the majority of cases of tardive dyskinesia are more subtle than
0: not. Sometimes I've had patients who tell me that they feel an inner tension and anxiety that turns out in the long run to be TD and, and not EPS. So differentiating this is an important issue.
1: Very, very important. There's another reason why it's important to differentiate, and that is that the patients who present with EPS, I think, are at greater risk for ultimately developing tardive dyskinesia. So it's very important to bear these conditions in mind and and understand how to recognize them and then to manage.
0: The data that we have thus far, is there a greater risk for men or women, for young people, older people? Have we begun to see any patterns that have some really solid predictability? Yes.
1: Now, I'm going to refer to studies that have been prospective incidence studies, because those studies are the most definitive. When you just look at a cross-section of patients and look at who's got TD and who doesn't, you're going to see differences. But because it's a cross-sectional sample, that's subject to all kinds of bias. Like, for example, if you go to an outpatient clinic and look at everybody in a certain time period and you find that more women seem to have TD than men, fact is is that women are more likely to go for outpatient therapy than men and you may be there may be biases that are distorting your view when you look at long-term studies that start with the patient does not have any signs of td and then you carefully examine them regularly over time and this would be for years and now you identify incident cases new cases and look and see what their characteristics are Now you are, I think, nailing down what these risk factors are. There's only been a couple of studies, really. Uh, We did one of them at Yale. John Kane at Long Island Jewish Hillside did another, and there aren't that many others. There are a few more. And what I'd like to tell you about are just the findings we found at Yale, because I think they reflect really what's going on. In our study, which was seven years of prospective follow-up, the strongest predictor is age, The older the patient, the the more likely they are to have TD. We looked up and down, left and right, all over the place for a gender effect. We could not find a gender effect. Even though in any textbook it's going to mention that the female gender is a greater risk for TD, I for one do not believe that. We found also the dose of the medicine, patients who have been on higher doses, the duration of course of exposure to these medications is a factor. And then there were a couple of surprises. The first surprise was we naturally looked for race. We had no hypothesis about race, but just as good epidemiologists, we looked at it. And we were very struck by a very strong and clear-cut predictor of African-American race. The African-American patient is twice as likely to get tardive dyskinesia compared to the uh, Caucasian. Finally, the risk factor that we found that was maybe the biggest surprise was handedness. We looked at handedness thinking that left-handed patients might be at greater risk for tardive dyskinesia. In fact, we found a significant increase in risk in the right-handed patients. That finding, because most patients are right-handed, doesn't have a lot of good clinical utility, but it has research implications.
0: It's the sort of thing we can't walk away from. We really do have to look at those two findings.
1: Yes, oh, absolutely. And it has been. been, They've been replicated. And, you know, I think in time, those findings will contribute to the understanding of the etiology of TD, perhaps even of of the psychotic disorders.
0: Interesting, interesting. Abby,
1: Abby, I might just mention a couple other risk factors. One that I think that's very important in these days, and that is mood disorders. We didn't really find it in our study, but it's been reported enough I want to mention mood disorders like bipolar disorder or depression because now that the antipsychotic medications uh, have been getting indications for use in bipolar disorder and even major depression, I think we need to be aware that the risk of tardive dyskinesia may be greater in that patient population and we we don't want to ignore that.
0: And as I heard you speak recently, and you mentioned that we've taken the whole concern of tardive dyskinesia, shall we say, off of the center stage, perhaps a little bit too much. And we really do need to spend a little bit more time reminding ourselves that the phenomena is there and the risk is still there.
1: It is. And it is there with the second generation antipsychotics. You know, I think we were very pleased when the second generation antipsychotics came out. And I think it's fairly clear they have less liability to cause extrapyramidal or parkinsonian side effects and the assumption has been that with that reduced risk for eps there would be a reduced risk of td that hasn't been proven yet and the fact is the labeling from the fda for the newer generation antipsychotics is the same labeling as for the first generation antipsychotics and the fact is there are cases that are appearing I get to see some of the worst ones. As an expert in this area, I've heard through the the malpractice I have seen through the malpractice process, some very unfortunate cases. Patients that get to malpractice, those are the ones that are very, very severe. I saw recently a patient on aripiprazole or Abilify who was being treated for depression. The Abilify was being used for the new indication. And unfortunately, this woman developed extremely severe Target of dyskinesia, target of dystonia. And that's a malpractice suit. And so management of these patients is very, very important still. And understanding these movement disorders is critical.
0: Well, this raises an incredibly important question because these medications are sometimes absolutely necessary for certain clinical conditions. They help a lot of people in many, many ways. What do we do when we begin to see signs of tardive dyskinesia sneaking in? How do we manage these these folks who, who need these medications?
1: Right. Very, very difficult. It gets down to the risk-benefit equation, which is something we all understand, but we really need to develop very, very carefully with these patients. So you've chosen this this, this situation. Okay, I'm treating the patient with an antipsychotic medication. They have started to develop movements. What should I do? Well, the first thing I want to do is a risk-benefit assessment that asks the question, is this antipsychotic medication doing anything? And I want to bring the patient in on that assessment as well as I possibly can. Patient needs to understand about risk benefits. In this country, in the United States, you know, it's almost kind of ironic. This is a country that when polled about the, the recent focus on the deficit, the vast majority of Americans said, we've got to do something about this deficit. But in the same poll, they were asked, well, should we cut services? And to a T, Americans didn't want it to affect the services that they receive. So they didn't want to cut services, but they wanted to fix the deficit. The same kind of mentality, with all due respect to us as a country, the same kind of mentality applies to medications and and expectations of doctors. Our patients, most of them, feel that when we prescribe a medication, that this medication is going to be all good and not bad. And so we as prescribers need to take the time to help them understand that medicines are good and bad at the same time. When a patient develops a movement disorder, that becomes even more critical that they hear this. So the patient's opinion about the medicine when they develop a movement disorder is very, very important. You want to document that discussion best as possible. You want to make sure that you are examining that patient on a regular basis. The use of scales like the AIMS exam is one way to do it, but not a standard way. You can just keep notes, but you want to show that you're monitoring that patient ongoing. You're monitoring those movements. And you want to reflect in your progress notes the kind of discussion that's been going on. I think these signed consent forms can be helpful. They're more defensive and medical legal in nature. I think we're much better off with a few sentences in the medical record that reflect a back-and-forth discussion uh, between the prescriber and the patient about the risks that we're looking at. Now, having said all of that, I think that there are times when I will change the antipsychotic medication. I happen to think that the drugs Seroquel or Closarel or perhaps Zyprexa or Olanzapine might be... Better for patients who develop involuntary movements than some of the others. That's my personal bias. I also think that the adding of a benzodiazepine to treat the movements, if the movements are severe enough can be a useful approach.
0: And one of the things that needs also to be put on the table, so to speak, is the fact that the newer medications are a lot more expensive than the older ones and there is a, a sense to drift to the lesser expensive medications, though they be perhaps as effective in controlling a psychosis, the potential of the side effects is much higher. That, that's a problem that people have to confront these days as well.
1: Yeah. People have forgotten. That the reason we developed the second generation antipsychotics was to reduce the risk of Parkinsonism and extra pyramidal side effects and TD. And you're right. I hate to see the state formularies trying to push patients back onto the first generation antipsychotics because we don't know yet. Empirically, we don't, we don't have absolute data for tardive dyskinesia risk related when you compare first generation and second generation antipsychotics. But I think it's common sense that to avoid EPS and TD, you're better with the second-generation antisechonics.
0: That's what it seems. That's what it seems from just general practice.
1: Right, it it does. And uh, until until we see otherwise, and I must mention to this, we just published a paper, Scott Woods at Yale, uh, one of my colleagues there, and I'm on the paper, we replicated that seven-year study that I told you about, which we had originally done in the 1990s. We replicated it recently and published the results thinking that maybe if we look at the incidence risks of tardive dyskinesia in patients who are now mostly on second-generation antipsychotics, maybe we'd see a lower risk of TD. It was a little lower, but not substantially. And there's a number of explanations for that, but I think the results of that study highlight the importance of not forgetting that EPS and tardive dyskinesia are real problems with any any drug that blocks dopamine.
0: And so it would seem that there should be, it would be nice if there was a lot of research going on to see if we could find a non-dopamine-blocking medication to be used as an antipsychotic. I'm sure there will be some side effect to the new medication, but at least it would take us out of this field, hopefully.
1: That's right. Since 1952, when chlorpromazine first came out, we have not treated schizophrenia any differently, really. All we have done is fiddle with dopamine, plus perhaps some other neurotransmitters like serotonin and norepinephrine and so forth. But the real focus has been dopamine. As you say, if we could get away from that and develop medications that do not work through the dopamine system, it would be very exciting.
0: This is all very interesting, and I think critical information for people who either themselves or someone in their family needs an antipsychotic medication. I want you, please, sir, before we close, to just go to the fact that there are other medications out there used for non-psychiatric purposes oh, that yes. expose people to tardive dyskinesia.
1: Yes, I'm really glad you raised it, and the, the big one that I think of is metoclopramide or Reglan. There's been a number of lawsuits over the last 10 years or so because that's a drug that's used for GI problems. It's not even used for psychiatric conditions. Uh, And I think that people listening to this, you know, want to remember that everything that I've said today applies to metaclopramide or RegLand.
0: Very interesting, and I thank you very much. William Glazer is from Key West, Florida. He is, as I said at the beginning, a very well-respected clinician and researcher. He's on the editorial board of different publications, and he has been on the faculty of Yale and Harvard. Dr. Glazer, thank you so much for taking us on a tour of a very important topic, and I hope people are better equipped to handle this situation should it appear in themselves or in their families. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.